0: This episode could contain profanity. It's up to me, I guess. Your Saturday could contain a GIST newsletter. To sign up for it, our once-a-week newsletter, go to slate.com slash gistnews. It's Thursday, January 24th, 2019. From Slate, it's the GIST. I'm Mike Pesca. If chalky candy hearts were so beloved, then there would be, right now, on the shelves chalky candy hearts. Theory, the reason that beloved Valentine's Day candy isn't available is that that candy is not actually beloved. ABC News 7 has the story. Sweethearts, those candies that come with messages of love like be mine, kiss me, and puppy love, well, they're not going to be on store shelves this year. Broken hearts everywhere. Neko, the candy's original producer, went out of business last year. The new owner is not producing them this year, but fear not, the company plans to sell them again next year. So something to look forward Hope to. we making a comeback. I've talked before about food nostalgia, how it's not actually about the taste of food, it's the associations that go with the taste. And disgusting chalky candy hearts remind us of Halloween and our second grade class and wearing your Ben Cooper Halloween costume. You know Ben Cooper, they made those flimsy plastic C-3PO masks with the degrade elastic band that snapped in half at a touch. But these disgusting little dusty candies, these... Off-center phrases on them, I love you, all mine, miss you, and honest loyalty. They're not actually popular. They're just familiar. Because if they were popular, then people would buy them. And if people bought them, they would still be made. And if they were still made, people would ask something like, who buys these things? These are still made. There are actually no barriers to the manufacturing of a chalky candy heart. Uh, They don't rely on difficult-to-acquire ingredients or a complicated mixing process. The slogans don't rely on flashes of insight from a team of genius writers. How do you like that on your resume, by the way? A couple seasons on the Gilmore Girls, and before that, I actually wrote on the Guiding Light. And my job right before that was with the Necco Wafers Company. You know, I wrote, uh, you're cute. That was mine. Also, you're mine. That was mine. You know, I was hoping to land a gig with the Magic 8-Ball Company. I did some work on rewrites of Signs Point to Yes, but then I succumbed to the siren song of Hollywood. Now, maybe you read that these Sweethearts Candies were referred to as the most popular Valentine's candy sold. I looked into that. How could these be the most? They're not even sold because they're not that popular. How could that be? Here's what it is. They're the most popular Valentine's Day candy sold because every other candy sold on Valentine's Day is just candy. Holiday-specific candies, like the Cadbury Easter egg, are holiday-specific because no one wants them for other parts of the year and with the chalk hearts no one wants them for this part of the year if there was a demand there would be a supply which is how running a for profit candy company works the neko sweetheart candy story isn't a sad story of a candy that we miss because we wanted and loved it it's a story of a candy that ceased to exist because it was largely unpopular and though this is a subjective judgment bad It was just bad, insofar as candy that tastes like chalk is what we can now call bad. On the show today, the story of a product that's finding it hard to exist because Google and Facebook are eating it. But first, the new film Serenity is the story of a fishing boat captain, played by Matthew McConaughey, who reconnects, not by his choosing, with his ex-wife, played by Anne Hathaway. They hitch a plan for murder, a fish-based murder. It's a film noir directed by Stephen Knight, who's the director and writer of the TV series Peaky Blinders. Serenity abruptly shifts away from noir, or better, better put, it's more like that it's a noir inside another kind of film. Just like this conversation with the director is about serenity, but perhaps will actually instill in us a sense of serenity. At least that's what I hope for. Stephen Knight, director of Serenity, now. Baker Dill is a fishing boat captain whose name really isn't Baker Dill. He runs tours off of Plymouth Island. And his boat, well, he doesn't own it. He and the bank take turns. Written and directed by Stephen Knight, Serenity is the name of the new movie. Stephen Knight is the writer of Eastern Promises and Dirty Pretty Things, the creator and director of Peaky Blinders and Taboo. His last director-writer effort in a movie was Locke, which starred Tom Hardy, and only Tom Hardy, well, Tom Hardy in a BMW. Hello, Mr. Knight. How are you?
1: I'm very good, thank you. Good to be here.
0: So, Matthew McConaughey is the star of this. I would imagine as an actor, you tell me, because I'm only a viewer, but he gives you all the intensity you need. You never have to ask him to up the intensity, do you?
1: No, no. <laughs> and, but fortunately, you also don't have to tell him to dial it down either.
0: You don't have to wait for editing to no, pull him back. No, yeah. I mean, he
1: is the consummate actor, professional. He's, he's, he arrives knowing how he's going to do it. He is – of the contemporary period, he's he's the Robert Mitchum. Yeah, I've heard you Um, make that comparison to Robert
0: Mitchum and John Wayne.
1: Yeah, Yeah. they've just got this – but that sounds a little bit reductive because it sounds as if he's always the same person, which of course he's not. But he's got that authority and that strength about him. Um, And I wanted him to play the classic American hero,
0: which is – Totemic. Now, Tom Hardy has that too. Mm-hmm. And Jason Stratham is an action star. Yes. So these are all guys you've worked with. How's yeah. McConaughey different? Um, they all have their own
1: strength, But what's specific? Course. Like yeah. you cast one and Well, I, one. I, I think that um, not to say that the others don't do this, but Matthew arrived on day one with a huge piece of card. And on it, he had tracked where his character believed he was in terms of his own reality right, in every scene with lots of scribbles and and, and additional notes and things. So whenever we went to shoot, he'd he'd consult this and and see where he was Was at. Was he right?
0: I mean, you had a concept of where his character was. Oh, no,
1: we talked about it and we went through it. But, you know, the the idea that he was so specific about it, about the the mechanics of acting.
0: Um, And we should also say, when you note that McConaughey comes in and talks about where his character is, you don't mean it ethereally, because in this film, there is a through line of the questioning reality, and then that really becomes explicit yeah. about halfway through, a little more than halfway yeah. through. This is an interesting movie because the things I really want to talk about are somewhat <laughs> a violation <laughs> of, the, uh, of the reality and the demand that we sell this film yeah. and that we withhold uh, twists, shall yes. we say. Yeah. And yeah, I think the twists are what is the reason the film exists and, the, and what makes it interesting. Yeah,
1: yeah I mean, it, it began, um, it, the initial inspiration was on a, on a fishing boat. Serenity, out of mm-hmm. St. Lucia, a few years ago now, and the captain was called Duke, and um, he was fine, and he was great if you're a tourist, and, and you pay him money, and he brings you beer, and, and you go out fishing, and until a fish actually got on the hook, and then you didn't exist. He was just obsessed. And I went out a couple of times and spoke to a few people about him, and they said he's totally obsessed with this fish uh-huh. that he wants to catch. So, One fish? Yeah, yeah. that he thought he had got on the line lots of times and that was bigger than any fish he'd ever caught. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And, you know, he lived in this beautiful place that he couldn't see.
0: St. Lucia. Yeah, yeah and, but yeah. he couldn't see it because all that mattered was boat. the fish. Yeah,
1: And that obsession reminded me of other obsessions. And, and But then I wanted to create that story and
0: then subvert it. What do you think, Duke, the fishing captain you met in Saint Lucia? If you had to guess, this one fish that he always thought he was in a battle with—do you really think it was the same fish every no. time? You do but, but he th- thinks it is. He
1: thinks it is, and no one else believed it was. But
0: it's, it's part of the of the concept of the film. If he believes it, it's true. That is true. Um, it, in the film, now, yeah, whenever you make a fish slash uh water animal obsession movie are you always hearkening back to Moby Dick or yes. or Jonah and the Whale I mean, yeah but because it's a movie Jaws like I know yeah. they all come into play but is Moby Dick like you can't get away from Moby Dick no, as the text
1: and definitely don't want to because that I think uh, in Moby Dick Captain Ahab questions his reality yeah and I think the book is about that it's about this man's obsession about his belief and his his religious beliefs and all of those things that Uh, at the time were so difficult to challenge. And I think this is a a modern version of something where someone who is not given to questioning existential beliefs suddenly has to confront something that he wouldn't confront. And I think there is a long tradition of American heroes, going back to Captain Ahab, where you have this sort of dislocated, closed-down, Isolated American hero right. who, who is not in the place that he should be, and who won't share, and who has secrets, and who um, Robert
0: Mitchum, yeah, a lot of his absolutely. movies, not John Wayne as much as yeah. Robert Mitchum, yeah, and that's yeah. why I
1: wanted this character because of what subsequently happens. I wanted him to be a recognisably fictional, yeah, entity.
0: I have this theory about movies that subvert the audience's expectation as far as the very genre of the movie. I mm. think American audiences hate them. Yes, I do. love the movie Vanilla <laughs> Sky, which was an adaptation from, I think, a French film, mm. but American audiences hated that movie because they don't like having the rug no. taken out from under them. Even M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable, which reveals itself to be a superhero movie, essentially, at the end. I think we could say that now, that the sequel is acknowledging <laughs> that. But, you know, at the time, it's a successful movie, mm. but at the time, it was his least successful in four mm. in a row. So, you a little bit, I know you got the nice backstop of Peaky Blinders and a lot of these other projects, but you are a little bit playing with uh, an idea that audiences have really not liked over the years.
1: Well, I mean, that's why I wanted to direct it myself. (laughs) I tend to direct the ones that uh, are a bit of a challenge. Like with Locke, the challenge was, can you make the most ordinary person in Britain doing the most boring job in the world, working with concrete, concrete, driving down a motorway, could you make that into a film? So I wanted to, with this, you know, knowing the rules of first, second, third act and the arc and all of those things, at the most inconvenient time, just take it away and just say, you know, I, I do what I... Obviously, I do commissions and I do stuff for, you know, for, for the studios and that's great and you understand what that is. You understand what the deal is, the contract... You do your bit and it gets moved on and mm-hmm. that's all great. That's the business. It's fine. But occasionally I like to do stuff that is a risk and just see what happens.
0: And is that because you feel only you can execute it or you don't want to even, you Inflict don't want to burden it. You don't want to burden it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Stephen exactly. Frears no, <laughs> it directed Locke. It, there's certain things
1: where you know that if you hand it on, it will be changed because people won't be able to resist. You know, I think Locke would have, you would have seen other characters. Right. And there would have been some other the, you know, a lot of people when they first watched Locke at the beginning thought it was about a murder that he'd put a body into the, you know, mm-hmm. that would have been introduced as a more conventional concept. So it's when I'm trying to protect um, something that is a little bit less conventional.
0: Before, I'm a little muddy, before Locke, did everyone realize what a great actor Tom Hardy was? Like, had his rep, was his reputation up there? Because I think of it as the movie that, convinced me that this guy's one of the greats yeah i mean i
1: think you know he'd done a lot of great work before that and he is a great actor so i think anyone who'd seen him in virtually anything even if you couldn't see his face Mm -hmm. you know what i mean you you sort of knew that he was this person who could be anything i did an interview publicizing lock with him and we sat together in the. it was in new york actually in a radio studio and the dj said I've got Tom Hardy sitting in front of me, and I still don't know what he looks like.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) that movie has more shots of the star through another surface, through a reflected surface, than anything else. I mean, there's a lot of full-on shots of Hardy, but yeah. Um, In that movie, Locke, it was all about um, paternity and parentage. And in this movie, that theme is there, too, And you have sons. Yeah. So is there an element... I've read that you take inspiration from a lot of places and uh, you have this great imagination where, for instance, uh, Dirty Pretty Things, it just starts with looking at a night clerk at a hotel and then you spin out a story. Um, But do you think that some of this comes from wondering about the father-son relationship or anxiety about it? Um, It is something that I
1: appear to be exploring. Because the way I tend to work is if it's something that's not a commission, I would sit at the keyboard and see what happens and write it literally, and then read it back and see what the characters have said. And it's almost like um, accessing whatever the hell it is that creates dreams. Mm -hmm. You know, where you you fall asleep and you dream, and characters loosely based on people you know, usually.
0: So when you say, or acknowledge, it appears that you are uh, exploring that, do you mean it to mean that you can't argue against that that is the outward appearance, or are you acknowledging that there really might be something going on that you're exploring, but you're not consciously trying to do it?
1: Consciously is yeah. absolutely the word, because yeah. um, I think it, I, I think it, it, it's me speaking purely about how I work, but if ever I try to sit down and plan something, like a, a, a script or a, you know, a series of Peaky, or an episode of Peaky, or even a scene within Peaky, try and plan it out, work it out, and say that's what's going to happen, mm-hmm. it becomes very rational and becomes very logical. Whereas I think if you just... And unsurprising
0: to an audience, yeah. probably.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think if you let this thing stumble in all
0: sorts of directions, it feels, I think, more real. Yeah. By the way... You're credited with having written, I think, every episode of Peaky Blinders? Yeah, I do, That seems, uh, even, you know, Breaking Bad is not written, Vince Gilligan doesn't write every episode, and Chase didn't write every episode Mm. of The Sopranos. How's it possible? How do you do that?
1: I just, Peaky is a different thing. I mean, it's a very personal thing for me, because it's based on stories that I was told when I was a kid by my parents, whose parents were involved in all of that. At the very beginning, I did try to have other writers involved, but it just didn't work. It there didn't literally right. is no
0: writer's room. No, there's no writer's
1: yeah. room, there's no other writer. I write everything from beginning to end. And maybe it's me not being able to let go of something, but I can't do it, especially with Piggy, I can't let it go. You know, I'm about to start writing season six now. Wow. Uh, if it's all, if the wheels fall off and it was horribly wrong, there are plenty of people who would say anything, but... At the moment, it's got its own sort of logic and momentum. And I know the characters so well that it feels, touch wood, it feels as if it's just right in itself.
0: I wanted to ask you about this. The rules of this movie. Every movie has to have a certain number of rules. And this, it seems to change them as they go along. Mm -hmm. Uh, How cognizant of it were you not to make the audience confused and also that when you go back and see the whole movie, did they comport with the rules as that are finally revealed? Yeah, I, I mean, it's
1: partly, um, in my opinion, uh, movies attract rules more than any other form of art. Uh-huh. And I completely understand it. It's because it's a big investment to make it. And so therefore, there's a great strong desire to make sure that it's going to make the money. And, that it's, and to do that, you sort of want it to resemble something else that was successful. Right. Um, if you're painting a painting, the outlay is not really that great. So people can be far more experimental. I think what I wanted to do with this is be aware of the rules that people expect when they go to see a film and then consciously break them. So to me, it's like uh, the the car is driving along, you run it into a tree, and then one of the wheels carries on down the road. And it's the story of the wheel then, it's not the story of the car. So We
0: might have thought it was the story of the car. Yeah, exactly. This is going to be a bad sequel to Lock, by the way. Lock, the left wheel, (laughs) sponsored by BMW. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Stephen Knight is the writer and director of Serenity, new movie starring Anne Hathaway and Matthew McConaughey in theaters now. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now the spiel, journalism versus coal mining. There are big layoffs in journalism today. Maybe a thousand journalists, Gannett, BuzzFeed, Verizon slash Oath slash HuffPo. What the hell is that? Well, Verizon owns HuffPo. Verizon's the phone company. They do quite well. HuffPo is the website. They really don't. In between is this thing called Oath, which is like the umbrella of all the Verizon holdings like TechCrunch and Yahoo and HuffPo. Although I read that three weeks ago, Oath became Verizon Media Uh, Let me read to you from the Oath webpage. We deliver the promise of the digital world by enabling people, businesses, and society to innovate and drive positive change. Not for the fire journalists, you don't. Oh, wait, wait, wait. But listen to this, also on the Oath page. We offer the only solution that combines a powerful demand stream with publisher-built products that grow and evolve your business. Oh man, I remember one Mardi Gras, I had such a powerful demand stream. The crowds were thick in the French quarter that day. And as it turned to dusk, I knew my window was shrinking. The demand stream would broke no dissent. Anyway, I feel sorry for the journalists who were fired as you should too, because we're all people. I'm a person, they're people, you're people. Some aren't exactly people. I found out about them when my colleague Henry Graybar posted a very good tweet. He said, journalists who interview Democratic presidential candidates should ask if they know journalists have lost their jobs at a faster rate than coal miners, then ask them what they're going to do about it. That's actually quite clever. I don't expect journalists to actually do this. It will seem self-serving. And coal miners are the object of, let's face it, mostly pity. But among my favorite coal miner job facts are these. One, I just found out from Henry's tweet, they actually have better job retention than journalists. That is true. Two, there are more personal trainers in America than there are coal miners. And I'll make a third. Coal miners, on average, make more money than both personal trainers and journalists, though personal trainers to journalists do quite well. I can attest to that. I've been busting out the upright cable planks. They're a game changer. Thank you, Rebecca. So coal miner is a good job for one reason, that it's a good paying job. Other benefits to being a coal miner are that's it. That's the only benefit. It pays well. And if this were 1899 or even in 1959, I would make the case that, yes, of course, we also need coal for energy, but we don't really need specifically coal anymore. We do use a lot of coal, but it's becoming less true. It's getting less true every day. Soon we won't need as much coal. Good, good for the environment, bad for the coal miners. That's okay. In terms of the health of the worker, health to the planet, job enjoyment, soot avoidance, coal miner is a very, very bad job. We seem really intent and keeping as many of these jobs around as we can. And again, it is a good paying job. That's the only good part of the job. Journalist, on the other hand, pretty much the opposite. It's a good job, even though it's a bad paying job. But while it pays poorly, it's interesting, it very much helps society, and the job doer gets a lot of satisfaction over it. Some people reacted to Henry's tweet differently than I just did now. They greeted the news of the layoff with glee. You see, journalists are getting laid off because journalists are bad at journalism. This is untrue. When coal miners get laid off, is it because coal miners are bad at coal mining? When machinists get laid off, are they bad at working their machines? In fact, has there ever been an industry with mass layoffs where the reason is that the workers just weren't good at their jobs? Challenger Gray on Christmas this year predicts large-scale contraction in the field of bank teller, not because of ATMs or online banking, but because all those tellers are awful, demanding your ID, having you punch your PIN code into that backward keyboard with the 7, 8, and 9 on top. They're bad, bad bank tellers. No. And while I think that many of the jiff jockeys in Henry's feed who took pleasure in the layoffs of journalists are simply people with hearts darker than a coal miner's lung, There were two misperceptions expressed over and over in between deeply considered memes from the movie Anchorman. I'd like to address these two misperceptions. One is that the reason that journalists are losing their jobs is because journalism is held in low self-esteem. And another is that journalists just aren't making work that's popular enough to sustain an audience. These are interrelated claims. So most of the publications we're talking about are web-based publications. Web-based publications are operating in a system that is dominated by Google and Facebook. Google and Facebook control almost three-quarters of digital ad dollars. To some extent, they deserve quite a big share. They're clever. They attract a lot of eyeballs. They made a product that advertisers want to use. On the other hand, they're killing news. So more people read Slate last year than the year before and the year before that. That's generally true. We've generally grown the audience more eyes. But as the audience grows, the amount of money we make per eyeball shrinks. Because why would an advertiser go with a smallish platform that delivers a solid audience when you can instead target your ads to the exact person who would be buying your product? Let's say you make grapes. If I were advertising grapes and I had $1,000 to do it, I'd go to Google and I'd put my grape company in the results of people who literally search for grapes. Or I'd go to Facebook and take out ads on the pages of Vinters. Or if Cesar Chavez is one of those Google doodles, then I'd advertise there. I'm sure some percent of slate readers like grapes or want grapes, but it's not that super targeted, highly efficient grape audience that Google and Facebook can deliver. There's nothing wrong with any of that, except it's killing news, but there are some things that Google and Facebook do that you can only do when you have a huge amount of scale. One of the things they do is that they take their content from places like Slate, they put it on their site, and it's not like there's no remuneration for that. There is a kickback, but it is far from full freight. All the successful news organizations, therefore, know they have to become subscription services. Advertising-based businesses are harder and harder with Google and Facebook sucking up all the advertising dollars. The point is, journalists aren't being laid off because their journalism is less popular or less important. But I'm not even getting into that. Not the why it's a right thing to have journalism. I'm talking about why journalists are actually attracting a bigger audience but making less money from it. There's this duopoly. And government, you know, does regulate monopolies and duopolies. So it shouldn't be out of the question for government to regulate these two companies, which, by the way, have done a lot more harm to America than any quote-unquote bad buzzfeed non-scoop ever did. As far as journalists being held in low self-esteem this is one of the charges of the jiffocracy that does not stand up either. I'm not saying that journalism is held in particularly high esteem or higher esteem than the military. That's the number one institution that Google polls about, but it does better than Congress and it does better than HMOs and it does better than big business. A few weeks ago, Gallup asked, do you trust the mass media? And 45% said either a great deal or a fair amount. This is up from 41% last year and 32% in 2016. I interpret that cratering that was the all-time low as A fallout from the media writing off Trump is a real possibility. But if you look at the Gallup poll on the institutions that have respect, newspapers outrank TV news. But TV news is this healthy industry where there aren't these mass layoffs. And big business, I said that big business is held in lower esteem than media. Yet if there were mass layoffs in big business, all those squinty eyes, gray bar interlocutors wouldn't be doing a touchdown dance proclaiming, see, see, you get what you pay for. No one likes big business. Journalists sometimes get it wrong. That's true. But even when they don't get it wrong, they do challenge us, they do discomfort us, they do make us rethink our worldviews, and a lot of us don't like that. If you were asked, do you hold the media in esteem? I mean, maybe if I was asked that, I would think of uh, CBS, Margaret Brennan, Face the Nation. Yes, I do. But maybe I would think of Fox, Ainsley Earhart. And then I'd say, nah, not really. When a pollster asks the question, we could all think of the journalists we don't like and chafe. Also, I do find when there is a piece of journalism that's bad, you think of it as journalism writ large. But when there's a piece of journalism that checks out, you just think of it as truth. I mean, take the Me Too movement. What's it about? It's about women and justice and reckoning, but it exists because of journalism. And by the way, Me Too is an uncomfortable and discomforting subject to a lot of people answering that Gallup poll. So as Axios, successful digital publisher, would ask, what's it all mean? Here's what it means. The business model for digital journalism is broken, or maybe we can't even say broken because it never really worked in the first place. The skill and quality of individual journalists has nothing to do with mass layoffs. The misdeeds of journalism as a profession does nothing to explain the demise of specific journalists, especially those working in the most desolate corner of the media landscape. And by the way, if coal miners... We're able to put thoughts or words or images or arguments in your brain, thoughts and words and images and arguments that you often objected to, you would find a way to resent them too. And that's it for today's show. Three journalists still employed and working hard, despite the fact that 55% of the public trust them less than a fair amount, are Pierre Bienname, Daniel Schrader, just producers, and TJ Raphael who's a senior producer of Slate Podcasts. Poll respondents trust senior producers of Slate Podcasts more than associate producers of Art19, but less than the church and the Supreme Court. I shall now give you a trivia question. And this trivia question will be answered in the GIST newsletter. Subscribe to the GIST newsletter at slate.com slash gistnews. Robert Mitchum's first big role in a film, Hoppy serves a Yeah. Hop along Cassidy, serving a writ. Hoppy serves a writ. My question is, what did Mitchum do after the horse that he was riding on threw him a couple of times? What did Mitchum do? And Hoppy serves a writ after his horse threw him. The gist, regretfully, we have just laid off our brand manager for demand stream optimization. It was a workflow issue. I have no doubt he'll be flooded with a geyser of offers. oomper depper dupuru. and thanks for listening.